Herod's dark shadow falls heavily over the pages of the New Testament. And uh, actually, we encounter six Herods in the New Testament. Herod the Great, he's the one of the Christmas story. Herod Archelaus, he's the one that uh, caused Joseph to go to Bethlehem. Herod Antipas, he killed John the Baptist. Herod Philip, he ruled the area where Jesus was from. Herod Agrippa, eaten by worms. And Herod Agrippa too, who put Paul on trial. And this family of rulers resists the church for an entire century. And in Acts 12, it's Herod Agrippa's turn to persecute the church. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. We read that he killed James, one of the elders in Jerusalem. He imprisons Peter, prepares to kill him. And what you see here in this story, and it comes up again and again in Acts, is it's kind of a metaphor or a symbol. Herod represents the, the powers that resist the spiritual, that resist the way of Jesus, that resist the kingdom of God, that resist movement towards God, that resists the spiritual life. And Herod, whether he knows it or not, he imprisons Peter at the same time time of year that Jesus was imprisoned seven years earlier, the Days of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. And that divine coincidence reminds us that when you decide to follow Jesus, you sign up for suffering because the kingdom of God is always resisted. Spiritual progress is always resisted. There's many verses that talk about this. It just shows it was expected as a disciple. Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Matthew 10.20, You'll be hated because of my name. Romans 8.17, We suffer with him so we can be glorified with him. Philippians 3.10, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. When Paul is converted, God tells him, I I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So in these very first verses of Acts 12, we we have this principle laid out for us. It's kind of the opposite of the prosperity gospel. It, It says that there are powers at work in the world that would do violence to the ways of God, the wisdom of God, the, the people of God. They are set up to resist And if you sign up for this Jesus thing, you sign up for suffering. You sign up for encountering resistance as you follow Christ. So maybe you could stop for a minute and just ask, where is Herod at work in your life today? Where are you suffering because you've chosen to follow Jesus? Where do you feel resistance in your spiritual life? What obstacles are you facing as you move towards God? What is God calling you to do that feels overwhelming and scary? What prison are you held captive in? What chains keep you from moving into God's future for you? 
These are normal experiences for followers of Christ. There's always a Herod. There's always a Herod. There's always resistance to the way of Jesus. There's always some kind of power in the world trying to do violence to the way of Jesus. Like you, I'm sure the past week has been excruciating, painful, greatly troubled, and like you, I've, I've also asked, what, what is happening in our country? How, how did we get here? And, but maybe unlike you, I don't know, this may be, I do this because of my vocation. I've also been asking questions about the church. And specifically, the, the question that has haunted me is how does a cross appear on the Capitol lawn next to a gallows and next to a Confederate flag and next to a swastika and next to men carrying zip ties for hog-tying kidnap victims and handcuffs and assault rifles wearing T-shirts that say six million Jews were not enough. What on earth is the cross doing in that evil setting? January 6th was an assault on our capital. January 6th was an was assault on our church, on the church. A violent Herodian assault. I love our capital. I love the church more how do we resist dark forces that would try to weaponize the church and deform her into a political battering ram? Henry Nouwen, the great writer, uh, wrote many books. The one I got the most out of was called In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Leadership. And writing in 1989, he said something that um, I think really applies to what we saw last week. And I'm going to read a whole paragraph from it. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power, political power, military power, economic power, moral, spiritual power, even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. We keep hearing from others as well as saying to others that having power, provided it's used in the service of God and your fellow human beings, is a good thing. Where this rationalization, crusades took place, inquisitions were organized, indigenous people were enslaved, Positions of great influence were desired. Episcopal palaces, splendid cathedrals, opulent seminaries were built, and much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, such as the great schism of the 11th century, the reformation of the 16th, or the immense secularization of the 20th, we always see that a major cause of the rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? 
Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. Jesus asks, do you love me? And we ask, can we sit at the right hand and you're left in the kingdom? Ever since the snake said, the day you eat of the tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God's, knowing good from evil, we have been tempted to replace love with power. I think that error, that heresy, that blasphemy that Nowen describes is a great assault on the church. Russell Moore, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church, he described uh, in a blog post the damage done to the church's witness last week. I'll just read part of it. Dr. Moore writes, people are watching. People are overhearing. Some of them are your children. The sight of Jesus saves and God bless America signs by those violently storming the Capitol is about more than just inconsistency. It is about a picture of Jesus Christ and of his gospel that is satanic. The mixing of the Christian religion with crazed and counter-biblical cults such as QAnon is telling the outside world that this is what the gospel is. That's a lie, and it's a blaspheme against a holy God. Every survey shows that the church is hemorrhaging the next generation because they believe that evangelicalism is a means to an end to this political movement. So yes, what we saw last Wednesday on the 6th was an assault on the Capitol. I believe it was also an assault on the church. So how do we respond when the church is being assaulted? How do you respond when your own spiritual life feels like it's being violently assaulted? Well, the first thing the early church did in this case was they gathered for prayer. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him by the church. You know, Matt and I kept calling each other back and forth last week and just asking, what do we do? What do we say? How do we respond? We, we don't want to get sidetracked from the gospel. We don't want to get drugged into a bunch of political debate. But something evil is happening here. What do we say? And as we prayed about it and thought about it, we, we felt that the first, first and best response was to call our church to prayer. And that's what we did Wednesday afternoon or Sunday afternoon. And we didn't talk about politics. We didn't really do anything other than read Scripture and pray. And Matt is a very gifted liturgist, and he, he just came up with some beautiful ancient prayers from the Psalms and from the saints, and we gathered and we prayed them together. That may not be the last response, but I think it's the first response when we feel our faith is being assaulted. Well, Matt read this story just before Herod is about to bring Peter out. Peter's heavily guarded, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone on the cell. 
The angel leads Peter out of the cell into the city. Peter thinks it's just a vision. It's not. He's really being set free. Peter heads to a little house church, and then you get a little comic relief here. A servant girl comes to the door. They're probably having a very rambunctious prayer meeting, praying, oh, God, free Peter. You can do a miracle. Free Peter. Free Peter. Free Peter. You can do a miracle. Free Peter. We believe in you. We believe in you. Knock, knock, knock. It's Peter. She's so excited. She leaves him in the cold, doesn't open the door, goes back inside. Free Peter, free Peter, free Peter, free Peter. Hey, it's Peter outside. You're crazy. That can't be true. Finally, they send her back out. She brings him in. And he says, let me tell you what God did. He set me free. And then he disappears into the night. You know, I think one of the main lessons of this powerful story is God rescues his people. God protects his people. God protects the church. God helps the kingdom overcome resistance. But notice that for the people on the ground who are experiencing God's protection the people God is moving in and through, they're very confused by what is happening. It all seems just so chaotic. Peter's not sure if he's dreaming or awake. He can't make his way out of the prison. The angel has to do it. Rhoda's so shocked she doesn't let him in. The disciples think he's a ghost. Peter abruptly leaves. The soldiers are shocked and bewildered. Herod is angry and threatened and lashes out. And while the grand plot line of the story is clear, God rescues his church from assault. The experience on the ground is confusing and disorienting and violent and chaotic. We are in a similar situation right now. On the ground, we are living in chaos. We don't know what's going to happen on the 20th. Sometimes it feels like a bad dream. And even when God does rescue us, we may not realize he's rescuing us and we may not recognize it at first, but I think what this text wants us to see and to understand is that God is with us in the chaos. God is with us in the fear. He's with us in the darkness. He's with us in the uncertainty. And even though it feels like it's all falling apart, God somehow is sending an angel, rescuing us, leading us through, moving us on even though we can't see it. I don't know about you, but I, I think it's so important in times like these when the events and the headlines and the news feeds can create so much fear is to step back and do just what you're doing tonight or what you're doing in your home, is to step back for just a minute and remember the promises of Scripture that God is in the chaos, working in and through the chaos to further his purposes, even if we don't understand it. Well, Herod is an angry man. He's always a victim. He's not just angry with the church. He's angry with Tyre and Sidon. We don't know exactly why. It's probably because they weren't giving him the respect and honor that he thought he needed, and, and they wanted a better trade deal and things like that. We don't have a lot of the details, but he decides to put them in, in their place and to show his power, and he has this big big convention, and he's very good at it, and the people cry out as he speaks, this is the voice of God, not man. 
And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Evil usually has a way of destroying itself in the end. Well, our dramatic story ends with a simple summary. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they'd completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. The kingdom of God is always resisted. The way of Jesus is always resisted. The spiritual life is always resisted. Movement towards God is always resisted, but God always prevails. The word of God goes forth. That's a promise for his church, but it's a promise for us individually when our own spiritual life is resisted and the way of Jesus feels hard to find and follow when every movement we make towards God seems fought by an invisible force. So be encouraged tonight, wherever you're facing spiritual resistance, keep moving, because God always prevails. Let's pray. Lord, tonight or this morning, wherever we're hearing or listening to this, we just step back from the fray, from the turmoil, from the chaos, from the confusion, and we look to you. And we believe that the way of Jesus prevails. Lord, there are so many ways in which the church feels assaulted and we ask for your deliverance. Meet us now, we pray, as we come to the table, even from our seats. In your name, amen.